And I just want to begin with a, with a little story. So the apple tree was huge. It was next to a rundown apartment complex. And below it, the kids in my apartment complex had stacked a couple of dirty mattresses salvaged from a nearby dumpster. And she was so cute. Older, probably 11. As you guys know, I've always liked cougars. And uh, tall, long, dark hair, sweater vest over plaid button-up shirt, high-waisted jeans. And it was dusk, and her smile was glowing as she laughed at the boys jumping from the tree onto the mattresses. But there I was in my tough skins, those stupid Sears Roebuck baby poop brown suede shoes, homework blows my mind t-shirt, and uneven helmet-shaped haircut, thanks to my mom, uh, complete with a cowlick as I watched with unnoticed longing. Sam, uh, my neighbor and really my only friend, was with me, so I decided to be brave. I climbed the tree to the very top, and looking out with hidden terror, I made sure she was watching, and before I could back out, jumped. The fall was fast, the landing was hard, and without bounce, my mouth connected with my knee, right where the hole in my pounce was, burying my front tooth into my kneecap. I held my leg, pulling my mouth free, groaned and wiped the tears away as blood began to flow. But she noticed. I mean, she really noticed, and she, she helped me up. And I don't remember her name or ever seeing her again, but it didn't matter, for I had wrestled with God, and He had blessed me as I walked <laughs> back to my apartment with a limp. I, I tell that story because I think that that story perfectly encapsulates the human struggle. Uh, the attempts to break free from our own limitations, the, the d- deep desire to belong, the deep desire to be loved, the deep desire to be noticed, but also the recognition that with all of our futile attempts to climb to the top of the tree, no matter if we get to the top or not, it doesn't ever seem to ultimately satisfy. We jump out and find ourselves with our knee buried in our kneecap. It's not just... I just love how everyone just cringes, like, oh, you just imagine that. You feel the pain. Uh, you feel the pain of the tough skin jeans, because you remember them, some of you men that are old enough. Uh, you feel the pain of being the outsider. And, and, and I think that this speaks a lot to, uh, to why it is that we need so desperately the gospel, is that the older we get, the more we see the lies for what they are. Uh, the communication that comes from our culture that's consistently telling us that we can be whatever we want to be. But as you cross that barrier into the middle of your life and you realize that that just simply is not true and that even that those that make it all the way to the top never seem to have a good purport from what they have found. And I'm reminded of this powerful quote from Martin Luther. And the paradox is is that God must destroy in us all illusions of righteousness before He can make us righteous. That real joy and peace is found in acceptance of His love and our impotence. 
His radical grace meeting us in our crippling brokenness. For His Gospel is not a ladder. No, His Gospel is down to earth. It's the good news that He has come to free us. And this is what I want us to understand. He has come to free us from the need to be free from the mess of our lives. Isn't it funny that we think He's come to free us to make us sinless people? But as Luther wisely said, He saved me from sin, but why didn't He save me from sinning? The unbelievable limitations that comes from the fact that we are a people that no matter how spirit-filled we are, still have to reckon with the flesh every single day is a people that need to continually be reminded that there is no righteousness that we can create and Jesus will continue to bring us to a place of humiliation until the illusions of righteousness are done away with so that we can function in His righteousness and His righteousness alone. I've been contemplating this more and more that Jesus has come to set me free from the need to be free from the difficulty of existence. We follow Him into His death and there is the door of hope. The inward gaze moves out where once we were blind, we now see things for what they are. We receive that sacramental cast that restores wonder and enables us to actually look at our broken past, our problematic moment, and our disturbing future with a new lens. A new lens that no matter how dark the days are, Jesus promises to be with us in the midst of them. You see, Zephaniah is a fascinating book for Zephaniah creates that strange and difficult paradox of the severity of God's judgment on sin and at the same time the promise of purification through that judgment. A salvation that comes to us based upon his entrance into a broken world, but at the same time his absolute anger over sin because as I said, his hatred of sin is because it robs him of what he loves which is sinners, which is you and I. And Paul said himself, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am what? Chief. Not I was chief. Notice actually the closer he gets to Jesus as he moves toward the end of his life, the more significantly he sees himself as a sinner. And you may say, well, doesn't he always start his letters off as saints? Listen, a saint is simply a sinner who's been saved. You're not a saint unless you first recognize you're a sinner. And you're a saint because you are a sinner who's been saved. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And I think that the prophets capture the pathos of God, that He is not the unmoved mover of the Greek philosophers. No, God is deeply moved by the human dilemma. He hates sin because it ruins our lives and it robs him of you and I. But he loves us. And that love is a jealous love. And as George MacDonald said, nothing is inexorable, unstoppable, except the love of God. And that love must love with a burning that will not be content until all that is unlovable in the beloved is burned away. This is what the book of Zephaniah is all about cosmic judgment and far-reaching salvation. Let's begin with the coming of cosmic judgment. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the prophet Zephaniah 
as a spokesperson for God. And here's what's fascinating. Zephaniah, his great-great-grandfather was King Hezekiah. Uh, he, was, he was a prophet during the time of Josiah who was one of the good kings, one who tried to bring reform to Israel, to bring Israel back to a faithfulness to Yahweh. But God still, in spite of the faithfulness of Josiah, recognizes that the people have gone too far. It's what Eugene Peterson said in his translation of Psalm 14 when he says God looks, sticks his head out of heaven and he looks down to see if there is anyone, any man, any woman who's not stupid. And he comes up with a string of zeros. This is the reality and because of that reality, judgment must come. And so Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Zephaniah says this, prophesying in a time where the people are returning to God, which is really fascinating. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. You may say, I get why he wants to wipe man out. But what did the birds and the fish do? And the answer is in that little statement, stumbling blocks. It actually connects us to what Paul declares as the, the condemnation that has come against the world uh, due to the idolatry of the human heart. And he says, Therefore, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, human beings have made God's creation, which was given as a gift to humans to steward as they are in covenant relationship with the God who created them. But instead, sin had caused them to lose sight of the Creator and instead put all of their emphasis, all of their focus, all of their hopes in the very world that was meant to be a blessing to them as they were in relationship with God. They left God out and they turned the creation into their object of worship. This is why it's always important for us to remember that the human heart is an idol factory. As Calvin said, you pull one out and it just reveals a new one. This is someone just asked me in the last service, are you saying that once we become born again, is it not true that we will, as we grow in our likeness to Jesus, sin less? I will say, I will say that you'll sin less in one area only to discover that you're sinning more in a new area because literally the life as a redeemed believer is like playing stinking whack-a-mole. That's what it's like. I'm like, oh, I've overcome sexual sin and and you know i'm i'm not i'm not swearing anymore you're like oh yeah but you're in the pulpit and you're super arrogant and you think that people should think you're awesome and you're like dang it lord okay i thought in the pulpit i would be this that would be the safest place for me to live an absolutely righteous and upright life and then the lord's like oh yeah but you were you ignored your your wife and kids because you thought reading a book about me was more important than them boom gotcha whack-a-mole every time we think we've overcome sin. We'd only discover. Why did Paul say at the end of his life, of whom I am the chief of sinners? See, there is a judgment that is spoken of here that we don't like to talk about. We love to talk about grace. But we forget that God is a just God. And now it's interesting. We long for justice in our world. We long to see God set right what is wrong. We don't want to hear about kids 
being murdered. We don't want to hear about rapes. We don't want to hear any more about corrupt government. We don't want to see any more unjust wars, which really are all wars because human beings are all sinful. We don't want to see the violence and the lies and the brokenness and the broken families and the dilemmas that many of us came up under. We see that sin all around us and we are ready for God to set it right. But isn't it interesting that we always want justice everywhere but in our own lives? Because this is the reality of where we live right now. We live in an age of grace. What is the book of Zephaniah about? I agree with Eugene Peterson that this is a thorough house cleaning. That the message of Zephaniah was a fire and brimstone warning of judgment, but there was a purpose to the judgment. And the purpose wasn't punishment, not ultimately. Rather, it was preparation for the coming of an honored guest. And just as he would prepare our houses for the coming of an important guest, a thorough house cleaning is what is inevitably needed. When you have someone come over to your home, you clean the house before they come, usually, most people. Uh, so, so I think that what's fascinating is that we are looking at these books, and as I think we should look at everything as Christians through the lens of the Gospel. We interpret these Scriptures through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of the cross. And what we see in the New Testament is that there is a transference of the coming cosmic judgment described by the prophets to the final return of Jesus. Jesus Himself said at the end of the age in His parables that there will be a time when, when there will be a separation of those that have put their trust in Him and those who have rejected Him. That there is a reality, as I like to say, the difference between heaven and hell is the difference of this. One is a place where, where relationship is restored in three directions perfectly between God, others, and ultimately ourselves. And the other place is a place where the one principle is I am my own. This is why so many people are experiencing hell on earth as they move toward hell in eternity is because they have chosen to put themselves at the center of their existence. And God is a God who will honor that choice to choose the impossible possibility to say no to the yes that God has declared over them in Jesus Christ is what I believe is the unforgivable sin. It's the sin that my father sits on the precipice of when I left his house in Alaska in January, and I said, Dad, what do you believe? As he, is, he was so sick and just drinking so much and smoking, and he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that if I put my faith in Him, I'll be saved. And I said, well, you believe in Him, but you don't believe you're saved. And he said, no. And I go, what do you think's missing? And he actually said to me, surrender. And I said, why will you not surrender? And he could not give me an answer. All he could say is, I am not ready. And I'm like, how ready does one need to be? Like you've spent six visits at the ICU in the last, in the last five months. Do you really believe that you're giving up any kind of real control right now? But isn't that the essence of it? Is that we are so stubborn and sin is so exceedingly sinful that we are blind to the truth that he can know what the truth is but refuse to surrender to it because he's worried he's going to have to give up what? I'm, I told him, I'm, man, I sound, like, I sound like a crazy man. There's nothing I would ever preach to any of you. I'm like, are you worried about your alcohol and cigarettes? I'm like, Dad, just keep drinking. You're fine. Just accept <laughs> Jesus. Honestly, if you stop drinking right now, it'll kill you. Like, seriously, it would kill him. I'm like, I don't think Jesus is worried about your cigarettes and alcohol at this point. Like, 
You're, you've already, the damage is done. I, I declare with Luther, sin boldly, but love Jesus more. Is that what you're worried about giving up? And ultimately, it's not even that. It's just the idea that someone else should be on the throne of my heart. I cannot accept it. I cannot abide in that. But see, God says there will be a final judgment. And I am going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And this is what 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says, And wait for His Son from heaven, whom, raised, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus, who entered into the judgment we deserve, has the judge and the judged in our place. The good news of the Gospel is that God, it says, while we were yet still dead in our sins, Christ Jesus died for us. That what we are proclaiming is as a people that have been humbled by the goodness and love of God, a people that deserve judgment but instead have received grace. His goodness. He offers us a hand when we were enemies. He is continuing. I believe the only reason my father is still alive is because Jesus will pursue him to the absolute end. And I believe that he's going to win. He's going to win. And my dad, when I meet him in eternity, will say to me, why did I wait so long? And I will say, I don't know. It's a great question. One that you will probably wrestle with for all of eternity. And that's a really long time. Here is the reality. Or do you presume on the riches and the kindness of forbearance and patience that we live in an age of grace, that this is a time of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is why I always say that we don't lead people into the truth of the Gospel by telling them that they're sinners. They already know that they're broken. They already know that they're impotent in their ability to save themselves. In fact, if we would fully recognize as Christians that we are fundamentally in need of Christ's presence, that the only place where we find life is when we actually enter into His death, that we are not bigger failures than God already knows that we are, that we are a string full of zeros, that it actually puts everyone on the same playing field at the foot of the cross, which means that we never exalt ourselves above those who are lost because we were once lost, but now we're found. That we believe in the depths of our being that this is an age of grace, but that age of grace will come to a close when Jesus will come to actually bring true justice to the world for there will be a new heavens and a new earth. This is what it says. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter in regards to this coming cosmic judgment in this age of grace. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. This is, I think this verse speaks to my father so much. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen to God's heart there. Why? Why does He care? It's not because of any good thing in us. For our best is but mixture. No, it's because of who He is in the, in the depth of His character. And he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this is what the book of Zephaniah is looking forward to. It's looking through the Gospel, through the cross, to the end of all things when, the, when 
when the heavens and the earth will melt away and God will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. Some have said it will be the greatest recycling project in human history. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And what we have to be reminded of again and again is that this is not the best there is. The best is yet to come. That there will be a day when we will meet King Jesus face to face and our salvation will be based not upon what we did for Him, as it's been wisely said, God does not need our good works. Our neighbor does. No, our salvation is based upon what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We are hidden with Christ so that when we meet Him, we will receive to ourselves the reward, which is a new body that is without sin. We don't have to ask the question, He saved me from sin, but not, why not from sinning? That is coming. When we will have the tears wiped away, and we will live in eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with God and with one another. So powerful when we think of it. But look what it says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 6. It says, listen, idolatry is at the heart of it, but what's at the heart of idolatry? Zephaniah 1, 6. Those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. There's the condemnation for 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 the world is that it's not seeking God. It's seeking, most people are seeking their own fulfillment, their own satisfaction, which is why we need to understand uh, as a church, we are called to go out and be a witness, to be a herald, to actually be a, a conduit by which the Holy Spirit can wake up the world because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That we need to live with an evangelistic impulse as I just spent last weekend with Luis Palau, who spent an entire lifetime uh, preaching the gospel and seeing over a million people make a decision for Christ. Man, if everyone in the church just actually played their part in, in presenting the goodness of God's love through Jesus to our lost family members, to our lost friends, to our lost co-workers, if we would just even invite them to come and experience the gospel, just even inviting them to church, if it's true that 85% of non-believers in America that were surveyed uh, were asked if they would go to church, if they were asked and they said yes, why is it that only 2% of Christians actually invite anyone to church? That hurts me. Means you don't have faith in me, as if that. No, it's joking. <laughs> You're like, really? I'm not afraid to ask him. I just don't want him to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> Are we a community that's comfortable saying, "Come and see, come and meet the King"? I wish that we had that impulse that Spurgeon had, who had such a strong vision for eternal realities of heaven and hell. Who said? He said that the primary responsibility of the church is to win souls. He said, if a sinner be damned, let them be damned by leaping over our dead bodies from trying to keep them from the wrath to come. He says, don't let them into hell without the marks of our arms from being wrapped around their legs. Let not a single person find themselves in that horrible place having not been warned and prayed for. I don't think we take coming judgment very seriously because if we did, 
we would not be comfortable remaining silent about the gospel that saves. Do you feel good now? You feel like me climbing that tree. You just got your knee and your kneecap. But look at the next reality. Because here is the power. Zephaniah begins with this incredible coming judgment that just, I'm going to wipe out everything. And then in chapter 2, as he begins, to, the judgment moves from Israel to the surrounding nations. Right at the beginning, he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commandments. Seek righteousness and seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. I love this. There's three things that he tells us to seek. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and seek humility. But I just share with you that, that verse. There is none who do righteousness. There are none who are righteous. No, not one. That there is no righteousness in human effort uh, that can actually achieve salvation. We stand, unfortunately, with a guilty verdict over our, over our minds, over our hearts, over our lives. But here we see this, this powerful thing. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And really, all three of those statements are wrapped up in the person of Jesus Himself. He is God in the flesh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is our righteousness. God must destroy all illusions of our own righteousness before He can provide us with the righteousness that comes from Christ. He is the example of real humility. For it says that He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That He humbled Himself in Philippians chapter 2 to the point of death. He shows us that the way to God is actually through the good death. We enter into His death He doesn't come to bring life to the healthy. He comes to bring resurrection life to the dead. And this is why it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Notice the essence of disobedience is being self-seeking. That's really challenging for us because our vision of what sin is is usually defined by a series of small things that offend our sensibilities. We don't think of sin as loving our kids too much. Putting our spouse upon the altar of our hearts. We don't think of sin as actually making our job more important to us than our king. But you see, the most dangerous sins are the good things that God gives that become supreme in our lives. Do we understand that? This is why we can't escape the verdict over our lives because we quickly take good things and make them ultimate things. It's what Augustine referred to as displaced affections. No, self-seeking, not obeying the truth. What is obedience to the truth? Doing the good things? I don't believe that's what obedience to the truth means. I believe obedience to the truth is doing the work of God. And what is the work of God? Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, what, is, what must we do to do the work of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's why it always comes back to what, the, what the, those who, who brought forth the Reformation came to understand that the righteous shall indeed live by faith. That verse took on great meaning. 
when we realize that the believer's responsibility is a daily return to the heart of the father. We think of the prodigal. The prodigal son is one, or the prodigal daughter is one who really goes away from God, walks away for a couple years, and then comes back. Listen, every one of you go prodigal every day. Which is why the Christian life is a daily return to the heart of the Father. Because moment by moment we find it is so easy to put ourselves quickly back upon the throne of our hearts. To retake control of our lives. We're not comfortable with following Jesus without knowing where we're going. But Jesus says no. The only safe spot. The only place that you will find yourself safe is a continual return to my heart. What God is looking is for people that are seeking Him. He saw us while we were yet still sinners. We have been born again by the Holy Spirit. We have been given the ability to actually enter into communion with God, but it requires a daily casting ourselves in naked trust upon His mercy. This is why I keep pushing upon the idea of church, if it was to truly function like church, would function much more like an AA meeting where it would probably be really healthy if I began every service saying, hi, my name's Josh, I'm a sinner. Because we need to be in that position of humility to recognize that it's in, humil- in, in humble dependence upon God that our true identity is discovered. I am a saint because I am hidden in Christ. And Christ is with me. You know what's interesting about the name of Zephaniah? The name Zephaniah means he whom Yahweh hides. And here he says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And we are hidden because Jesus took that anger into himself. The offenses that, that humanity have piled up, it says that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so it is hidden in him, as Colossians 3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is our safety. It's the only place that's safe. Actually, the transformation of the life is when we actually die so that Christ's life can actually be manifested through us. This is why Paul says, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's why Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, which means everything we do without him is nothing. Return to the heart of the Father. What a beautiful picture this is. Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. What do you seek when you seek God? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is essentially what makes the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is God's presence there. Jesus in the midst. What we're called to seek is him. The one who has God has everything. But what we often do is we don't seek God, we seek what we can get from God. We turn Christ into some sort of weird cosmic Santa Claus who's here to give us everything we ever wanted. When I preached in, in Spain at this extremely Pentecostal church that clearly had a high emphasis on physical healings, I said, I was sharing a story about my friend who died of cancer, and I said, I prayed that God would heal him, and everyone started applauding and yelling. The thousand Spaniards just applauding and yelling, and then I just said, He died. And they were just like, pew. Like, <laughs> I'm like, but through his death, salvation came to his father. And then they're like, okay, I think we can clap again. I think that, <laughs> it's new theology for us, but we're going to. And 
I was so glad I was able to speak to that. What a disappointing reality if, if we're really, if salvation is based upon God healing you from whatever ailment you have right now. Who cares if he heals you today? You still have to die. Even if he stinking raises you from the dead, you still have to eventually die. That's why Lazarus got the bum deal. It's like, oh, you were going to be in eternity with God forever. Jesus raised you from the dead. Now you got to go back to your messed up family and live a little bit longer and then die all over again. I think that sounds horrible, honestly. We like, we're like, man, what an amazing miracle. Lazarus raised from the dead. And Lazarus is like, that sucked. You know what? I was used as a personal illustration for believers' lives to show that Jesus is the resurrection of life. Yeah, he'll have a, little, a few more crowns for having to endure this broken life a little bit longer than most. No, the primary thing that Jesus is seeking after in us is a heart that seeks him in everything. Not a heart that tries to escape the challenges and the existence around us, but a life that continues to seek him in spite of the difficulties that we're experiencing today. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. But we're like, ask for what? He already told us what to ask for. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Come to Me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, notice, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The power of the gospel is the gospel brings freedom from the need to be free from our life circumstances. Listen, guys, anyone that tells you that life isn't impossible is lying to you. Life's impossible, but Jesus is good. Life is impossible, but life also has the ability to be a, a life that is marked by wonder and joy because our difficulties be, become transformed by the gospel because we know that though our lives can have a whole broken narrative, a whole broken history, that God has this unbelievable ability to actually bring beauty out of ashes. It's the power the gospel and we need to be hidden in that what we need is a, a spirit and attitude that says i will return to my father every single day look at this next passage the purification by fire for here we have it zephaniah chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 therefore wait for me declares the lord for the day when i rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms to pour out Upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Here we see what the purpose of his judgment is, is meant to bring. Look what it goes on to say. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. What? What's going on there? And here we see it. Is that, the, that God's wrath is merely his love violated. And his love violated brings about his wrath, which if we allow, has a purifying effect in our lives. Isn't it interesting? If we resist that fire, God's wrath can be, be a horrible reality for one who wants nothing, who rejects the gospel and wants nothing to do 
with God's presence in their lives because hell is not the absence of God. It's the absence of relationship with God, but it is God's full and total presence for all of eternity without the ability to know Him, which would make Him truly a consuming fire. But for us who have said yes to His yes declared over our lives, His fire is a purifying fire that actually brings about a transformation of the life as He burns us clean by His presence, which is why we must return to Him day in and day out that we might experience that reality the day of the Lord will bring, will bring not only destruction for the unrepentant, but purification for the remnant. He does not explain how cosmic judgment and far-reaching salvation coordinate, but He faithfully proclaims both elements. And this is the sovereign grace of God. The freedom of God to meet sinners in their sin. It's funny, I realize that sovereignty is such an important component of God's understanding God's character, but how we define sovereignty uh, is, is equally important because many define sovereignty as, as God's determined will as if everything you do has already been programmed for you to do. It's this very determinist kind of understanding. That's not how Luther saw sovereignty. It's a little more how Calvin saw it. Luther saw man's limitation or the bondage of the will as not the inability to do anything with freedom. It just means that everything we do is limited. We cannot climb the ladder to our own salvation. And we all can understand that fully. Here we have this understanding. Sovereign grace is God's freedom to meet the sinner in their sin. No one comes to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This is why I believe it's so important that we as a church are faithful to preach the Gospel every time we gather. That even as people who communicate the Gospel, what we are to do is to continually lift up Jesus because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That's why I encourage you guys to come and be a part of the baptisms today. We are lifting up Jesus in a public space. I believe with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit will draw the lost to himself when the church becomes a faithful witness. A forgiven, humbled, and purified people will enjoy the ultimate blessing of paradise restored, which is what Zephaniah looks forward to. And finally, let's look at the last passage Many call this passage, Zephaniah, specifically Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, verse 17, the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. Look at the change of tone from the opening of, I'm going to wipe everything away. Uh, this is, once again, the mystery of God's pathos. He obviously feels things deeply. Uh, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. How does God take away His judgment against us? By taking that, how can he do that without being in, unjust? The only way that judgment can be taken away is that someone else has to pay for the crime. This is the reality. This is, this is that component of transactional reality of the gospel is that Jesus became the judge and the judged in our place. The judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. And what are the greatest enemies that we face? The greatest enemy that you'll ever face is yourself. But there is the enemy of Satan who is defeated on the cross. There is the enemy of sin which is defeated on the cross. There is the enemy of this world system that is defeated on the cross. He says, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil because evil has been defeated on the cross. All sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven 
on the cross of Calvary? Why do we continue to confess our sins if all of our sins have been forgiven? Because a confession of sins keeps us in the light, keeps us humble before the king, because though the sin is forgiven, sin still seems to rear its ugly head and wreak havoc in our lives. Though the Father sees us as perfected in the Son, we know in this body lies no good thing, which is why we need to continue to be vulnerable and open and transparent before one another rather than doing what many Christians do, which is put on masks that actually hide the reality of what is actually going on in the hearts, which is why I think that so many pulpits are empty because pastors have fallen due to the fact that they're consistently hiding their own brokenness from their communities, trying to present themselves in some sort of righteous light that was never real to begin with. If they would have just began by humbly recognizing that they were broken, maybe they wouldn't have gone to the depths of darkness that they found themselves in before they ended up being disqualified from ministry altogether. <laughs> That's why you're going to always get from me the catharsis of confession. The catharsis of confession. If you're uncomfortable with that, you're at the wrong church. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice. Here's This is just the money verse right here. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The God who hates sin and will judge sin in the world is the God who clears away our enemies and takes away our judgment. The God who exults over us broken, sinful people, a string of zeros. This God... He rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us with His love. He exults over us with loud singing. Why are we a singing people? Because we worship and serve a singing God. A God who literally loves us so deeply that it puts a song upon His heart. I, I think that the power of this, of this passage should produce in us no longer a fear of evil, but it should produce in us a fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's the stock biblical term for wonder and either sudden or cultivated awareness that God is our King in charge in the center. And when we have that understanding, what happens is that it begins to create a cultivation of wonder where now I've been working on, on a memoir that I've been writing over the last couple months. That opening story is from it. And, and it's allowing me to actually enter into a very, very broken childhood uh, and even young adult life and even adult life into the present, allowing me to enter into my own history with a new lens that sees how God was at work in my messed up life from the very beginning. He was always there. He was always with me. He was never far from me. He was closer to me than I was to my own thoughts. I see the pinpoints, the intersections of grace at play through my entire history. And what the gospel does when we realize that there is a God in heaven who, yes, he never promises to remove the difficulty of existence from our lives, but he does promise to be with us in the midst of them and saying to us again and again, the best is yet to come. Allows us to actually look at things with a new lens restores a childlike wonder and innocence that brings a joy to life even when it's difficult. It's the kind of joy that I saw in my friend Craig in the last month of his life as he was facing the inevitable reality that cancer was going to take his life before he would ever walk his girls down an aisle or even see them graduate from school that it had taken him away from his wife of so many years, that it had taken away his health. It was that joy, that simple strength that said, everything in this world has been taken from me that is dear to me. 
all I have is Jesus, and that is enough. And the beauty of that kind of faith reminds us again and again that we are not climbing ladders, friends. We are dying on a cross with Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. This is his radical grace meeting us in our crippling brokenness. This is his down-to-earth gospel. A God who steps into the judgment we deserve and takes it into himself, who puts us into an age of grace and is utilizing us messed up, broken people to be conduits of that gospel. But what we need to understand is that age of grace will come to a close. When the last person has come in, Jesus will return. And then the final judgment. It says it's been appointed once for a person to die, then the judgment. I like to be reminded that there will be a point when the last person that will get saved will get saved. Don't you? Come on, let's admit it. Don't you kind of want to be the person that leads the last person to the Lord? (laughs) I want to be that person. I hope it happens today at the baptism. Just boom, with Jesus forever. And you're like, you get the title of the person that led the last person. (laughs) That's the reality of what we are facing. This is the intersections of grace with our whole story. He is here in our darkest moments. He has already dealt with the judgment that we deserve. He took it. Say yes to His yes. Don't say no to His. Don't choose the impossible possibility. Say yes to the yes of Jesus over your life. He loves you. He longs for you to know Him as He knows you. He's extended a hand. Let His fire burn you clean as you die with Him and enter into the resurrection life of Christ. This is the beauty of the Gospel. That He can take the foolishness of our lives and bring about the beauty and the power of God's saving work. Amen? Let's pray.